0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me. I am... It's going to be a grind my gears episode. We're talking about one of my bugaboos. It was hard to rent this house that we're in, and I still need to buy a house for my family. And it's expensive, and I want to know why. And what can I do about it? And who can I blame? And who's going to fix it? And we are very fortunate... To have Jeremiah Ludwig, an independent housing policy researcher based in Washington, D.C., with four years of experience studying and researching U.S. housing markets and policy. He's also a Young Voices contributor, and he wrote the article for RealClearmarkets.com. Housing is actually less affordable today than in 2021. So I was interested to talk to him because I've known and felt and seen, but that's not necessarily data like he's collected. That housing is a little more expensive. Without further ado, Jacob, Th- Jacob, Jeremiah, excuse me. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Chris. I'm glad you enjoyed the How does one, yeah, absolutely. Who, how does one become a housing policy analyst? Tell us your story.
1: <laughs> the story behind it is a little bit long. Basically, I moved up to the U.S. from Belize in Central America about seven, eight years ago now, and I had to get a job. I didn't have really any money when I moved, and so I started looking around, and I got a job in construction. I was working as a low-voltage electrician and an IT contractor. Pretty straightforward work, but I started building some close ties with my community down in Tucson, Arizona, and I started to realize that a lot of the problems we were facing as builders and as workers in industry were being caused by costs imposed by policy from government, and I started to appreciate just the importance of the effect of those policies on the housing market and on our ability to do our jobs and to provide the goods that people wanted. And as I built up that appreciation, I decided to go to school and I got a degree in political economy at the University of Arizona. And the rest is kind of history. I'm, I had an internship here at the Cato Institute last year, and I'm working to establish myself as an independent consultant as best I can in housing policy research and helping to get communities to do housing
0: policy a little bit better. That would be great. So what we I'm here in Indianapolis, and in Indianapolis we're building a lot of housing downtown that is twenty five to thirty five hundred dollars a month, which doesn't necessarily solve the problem for the people who can afford $1,500 $1, 500 a month, uh, maybe twenty five hundred a month. So when in twenty one, when we were looking for this place, it was very difficult. So for instance, the apartment I lived in. The old 616. It was $800 a month for the eight years I lived in it. I moved out. They ripped up the carpet. They put down some crappy rollout linoleum. And then they charged the next sucker 1600 bucks. And that was the cheapest place that you could find in that area. This house was $300 more with a ton more square feet. But it was the cheapest thing we could find that was in a safe area. Nice. Wasn't just like a, a crappy little crappy when you go on Zillow, that's what you saw a lot of for $2,500 a month. Now, to you in Washington, D.C., who's across from the White House, apparently where you're living in that stylish apartment, you must be like, oh, that sounds like an amazing amount of rent. <laughs> but I, this is you used to read about the housing crisis in places like L.A. and California and San Francisco and D.C., and it's now reached places like Indianapolis and rural areas. What, how do we get to a point where housing has just become so much more expensive in 2023? Pre pandemic, what were some of those factors? And then we can talk about the pandemic.
1: So there's a. There's a complicated question, but a really important question. And effectively, you're preaching to the choir as far as expensive housing is concerned. I pay 1400 a month for literally a shoebox that has shared amenities on everything. And it's literally the cheapest thing you can possibly find in the D.C. area and it's difficult. It puts a lot of pressure on on families across the board. It's a stereotype that it's low-income families that are typically constrained by housing costs. But lately, over the past decade here, we've started to see the pressure mounting even for middle-class families. And it, it can be a, become a real struggle because it pushes other things out of your budget. And the reasons that it's actually gotten to this point are actually pretty complicated. Um, to simplify it, effectively, we're at the point where pretty much all major cities in the United States right now have a affordability crisis where housing is just becoming more and more expensive over time. It's far outpacing inflation and it's getting to the point where, like I said, middle-class families are struggling to make ends meet and pay bills. In cities like Washington DC, New York City, Boston, LA, San Diego, things have just gotten ridiculous expensive with your average uh, apartments actually selling at 800 to a $1 million each. It gets a to an extreme degree in those kind of places, but it's even spilled out into places like Indianapolis and by and large for cities, the cause of the problem has been supply shortages. So the history goes back a little bit further than just pre pandemic. It's a problem that we've been dealing with since the early sixties, actually, where in the early sixties, we saw a major shift in how we do a lot of housing policy where we started becoming much more strict particularly with zoning. We started making it so that the space within which you can build on a particular plot became smaller and smaller. We started pushing down the height limits. We started requiring more and more setbacks from the streets and it made it so that you could make you were less economical in making use of your particular plot of land. And what that did is it just made it so that less housing ended up getting built. We had a lot of problems where a lot of affordable housing typologies started to become harder to produce and harder to sell. Anybody in your audience is old enough, they'll remember that back in the 60s and 70s, there was a big boom with mobile homes, but you don't really see those around so much anymore. They're not a common way to think about like affordable housing. There was a big shift where a lot of cities came in and they cracked down pretty heavily on affordable housing typologies, these small, like one room units that were, you know, like attached to other units and were inconvenient places to live, but were very cheap. And after the 60s, we saw just a mounting problem where it just became harder to build. The permitting process became less and less transparent, and environmental reviews started eating up a major part of the development costs for potential builders. And it, it really just started to come to the head now in the past couple of decades here. But it's been a problem that's been building up for a long time now, Whereas I mentioned in the article, the estimates on the supply shortage are anywhere between 3.8 and 20 million units in the US, depending on how exactly you measure the shortage. But what that means for cities like Indianapolis and DC and New York is that you have a growing population of people that are competing for a small number of houses. And that number of houses is not increasing dramatically. Thankfully, we've been able to get some political groundswell, trying to get some reforms in place to make it a little bit easier. But we need to pick up the pace of that because we need to really start building very seriously if we're going to meet those goals of millions of units and actually see prices stabilize and go back down.
0: What should we be building? Because what we're building here are high-end units because developers can make good money on that. They can attach it to mixed-use buildings, so you can have a restaurant and a shop in the first floor, second and third floor, maybe some office space. Then above that, have four or five levels of apartments, and you can charge $3,500 because it's in a trendy part of Indianapolis. But then if you get to the part of town I'm in, which is just barely outside of downtown, they're not going to let you build anything. You may get some mixed-unit, mixed-use where you have some office on the first floor and maybe three stories above. And there's definitely not going to be any low income housing coming in in this gentrified part of town in a part of town that actually really needs the space. So it just seems to push people further out and people are competing for more expensive units. I imagine that has to be everywhere, right? I, I doubt we're experiencing like something new people who live in downtown areas, despite being progressives, really love to keep people out that they don't want to live next to. That just seems to be a general rule. Is that gut instinct of mine correct? Or is Indianapolis just F the poor people while DC's let's just build all kinds of affordable housing?
1: It's definitely not unique. Virtually every single city in the United States, every incorporated city has some type of zoning code, which severely limits what can actually be built within the city. And as a result, a lot of new developments tend to be pushed out. One reason that you tend to see a lot of the new units tend to be a bit higher income is because you're working on the margin within the market. So you're trying to... You're trying to build the marginally most profitable unit that you can get. And in a highly competitive market where you have a lot of people vying to get into the market, people with the highest incomes are the ones who are going to be able to get in first. And so the developers are going to cater to them. If you want to reach down to those people who are lower in the income tiers, you have to build a lot more housing. You have to satisfy the demand of those people who have the most income because they're going to price you out, obviously. And then once they have the housing that they want, then you can start building lower quality housing just because that's where there, there's going to be lower margin for profits, but it'll still be sufficiently profitable that developers will continue to
0: build at that point. That kind of makes sense why they start there and then it has worked its way out because the people who can afford, I don't know how people or why they'd want to live in downtown, kind of that highly mobile Ume D.C.'s, Indianapolis is just like a very commuter city. So it's just interesting and a fast growing city to see that core pop up. So in in terms of general housing and how we can build affordable housing, what would you recommend? What should we see cities start to target? Is it repealing those zoning laws first or is there a type of housing being built and a strategy that you really like that kind of solves this problem?
1: So whenever you're dealing with a body of policy that is causing problems and has been around for about a century in the case of zoning laws, it's good to start at the margin. Don't try and just tear down the whole thing all at once because there are special interests that are ben- that do benefit from housing having zoning laws in place, and you're going to butt heads with them. And we've seen that happen in in multiple different cities. Right now, Kathy Hochul in New York, the governor, is trying to get the the state to start building more housing, and she's butting heads with a lot of suburbanites. They've already blocked one of her pro-housing plans, and they're gearing up to try and block another one. so there's a lot of people who don't want to see large amounts of new housing built and don't quite make the connection on like why that's necessary for long-term stability in the market. But one strategy that has worked, I think, quite well, especially for these larger, more liberal cities, is one that's been playing out now in California and in Seattle, where they focused on trying to upzone. So effectively, your zoning rules create an envelope within which you're allowed to build on a specific plot. They say it can't be any higher than this particular height. It has to be so far back from the curb. It has to be it has to have so much parking. It has to have it has to take up like a certain percentage of the lot. They have all kinds of rules that just decide like how big that envelope on your property is allowed to be. And the marginal way to improve housing is you just increase the size of that envelope. And basically say, you can actually build up another story if you want to, or you can build a little bit closer to the curb, or you can add an accessory unit to it. And that's the approach that uh, Seattle has taken, and now California. And it has spurred a massive amount of construction in the state of California and in Seattle. And they're making serious strides toward meeting some of their housing needs by doing that. And I think it's a fairly unobjectionable approach to it where you're not trying to tear down a massive system of zoning that has been in place for ages and stepping on everybody's toes. You're trying to work at the margin. Because a classic pushback against upzoning is you're going to be building a massive apartment building right next to my like, single family home out in the suburbs. Why are you doing that? I don't want to have to deal with all this mess like months of construction, disruption to public services, just increased stress on everything in my community and in my schools and in, in just everything across the board because everything has to be scaled up as you bring in more and more population, obviously. Um, so Eventually going into that up like level up, can come from <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the movie Up where he's <laughs> yeah. just my
0: like- right home.
1: <laughs> yes, you're the ultimate holdout. The When you yes. do that, the good news for you, if you're able to be a holdout like the old guy in Up, you're, the offers that you're going to get on your house are going to be the tens of millions of dollars. I guarantee you that yeah. Like last guy who was making that offer to him probably offered him like $20 million for his lot
0: fool he could have bought the zeppelin to fly in and fight the other zeppelin I, I have a four-year-old i watch a lot about. so it's just like everything's top of mind like all my all my real world examples are bluey and up and tangled so let's talk about the pandemic how did that screw everything up in terms of housing costs <sighs>
1: I honestly am not too quick to blame the pandemic for the problem, just because it's been an issue that's been building up for decades and decades before the pandemic came around. But it did accentuate things a little bit. So the big things that the pandemic did is, one, thanks to the stimulus bills and thanks to a lot of people being able to move into remote work, many people in the US all of a sudden had a fairly large amount of disposable income as your disposable income increases and people all have to stay at home, their demand for housing is going to increase. If you're stuck at home all the time and you have to work from home, you don't want to be stuck in a little shoebox apartment. That's maybe fine if you spend like most of your time out and about at work and doing other stuff, but your demand for housing is going to increase and your budget is going to have increased as well because these people have more disposable income. And as a result, the demand for housing went up. And since demand went up and supply was still constrained, we weren't building like a ton of new housing for these people. Then prices just started to skyrocket really quickly. As prices skyrocketed, they started to contribute to inflation. Obviously inflation is one of the factors that are counted for in in the CPI. They don't count for it directly, but that's a separate conversation, but it is something that was under consideration when the fed started making its moves to, to get inflation under control. And as they started to, to, hike up the interest rates that had an effect on mortgage rates and your how much you pay for your mortgage is a huge part of how expensive your housing is and so we have those two things that kind of contributed together to to make the problem worse than it already was but they're not necessarily the cause of the problem if that makes sense
0: yeah so at some point the cdc which i don't know how they found the authority to do this said that we can't evict people from their homes how big of a contributor to the rise in housing costs was that? How are people still suffering the effects of that? Like, how bad was that policy or good?
1: So with evictions, they weren't evenly distributed. So the CDC can do what it wants. It can can make issue a moratorium on evictions, which is what they did. It ended up getting repealed, and then it got replaced by a a lot of individual state agencies and state governments started coming in and replacing them. But even though CDC may issue the moratorium, somebody has to enforce it. And a lot of it boiled down to local politics. So, for example, New York was very hawkish about actually enforcing the eviction moratorium. But Arizona, which is where I was stuck during the pandemic, were much less hawkish about it. What happens, though, when you have a really severe eviction moratorium in place is it makes it much riskier for landlords to rent out to anybody, and they have to account for that risk somehow. They can't just continue renting out their apartments to whoever they want. They're going to start being much more careful with how they rent things out because if they can't kick you out, they're basically stuck with you for the foreseeable future, and if you trash the apartment, if you refuse to pay rent, that's a huge liability for them. And so they're gonna they're gonna convert that risk into the amount that you pay for your rent. This is all in theory. In reality, there's a lot of variables that contribute to how much you actually charge for your rent, but you will see an uptick following an eviction moratorium, which will cause your rents to rise. How much of an effect that actually had is not something I've studied in any great depth. For the most part, the eviction moratoriums were repealed in, I think. It was the majority of states they were pretty much done with after the first six months, because that's how long that first moratorium lasted for. The second moratorium ran for eight months, but it was only really enforced in like deep blue states where they had an administration at the state level that was willing to enforce those,
0: such as California, New York, Washington, D.C. Um, and it seemed so- like October of 21, maybe when it ran out. Yeah, it
1: ran out of steam because at a certain point, if you drive the risks up too much, especially if you combine this increased risk with rent controls, which is something else that they did, you create a situation where people start just abandoning the units. It's too expensive to maintain it and you can't rent it out to anybody. If you do rent it out to anybody, you're just taking on huge risks. And so you'll get abandonment
0: of units, which is so what? And by that, do you mean that the tenant just stopped living there or that the landlord just stopped servicing it and. A landlord and walked the landlord. away. Okay. Yeah. All right. And the landlord just walks away from it. It's too much of a liability. Can you explain rent control? What is that? And is that helpful? Is it hurtful? Give us some details on that for those of us younger folk who didn't live through the Thomas soul seventies complaining about <laughs> rent control. So rent
1: controls are just a form of price controls in the housing market. They basically say that you can't increase rent past a certain amount they basically just take your prices and they bury them in amber and solidify them and say you can't change them that or they have set amounts that you're allowed to increase the rents the idea is that it's going to it's going to keep parts from taking advantage of tenants in reality it just means that less housing is provided on the market it's just it's far less profitable if you can't actually adru- adjust your prices to demand it's far less profitable to go in and be a landlord and take good care of your units if you're stuck at paying something that it, it may well be the case that the rent level that they set it to just isn't profitable and it has to be subsidized by either your federal or your state government. But ultimately, it just leads to less supply of the good, as, it, as you would expect really in anything. We've seen rent controls, not rent controls, but other forms of price controls in other industries, and it just causes all kinds of problems. Aviation is a famous example for that.
0: All right. So we've talked a lot about renting and your articles about housing is less affordable than it was two years ago, three years ago, even. And you spend a considerable amount of time on buying homes. That seems to be the crux of the argument. So how much more expensive is housing overall? And secondly, buying a home now versus 2020
1: or 2021? Yeah. So There's an important distinction there in that the price of a home, that is the list price of a home, when you go and you look it up on Zillow, is not the same price that you pay for it once you've gotten your mortgage. Because your mortgage includes your mortgage rate, which is just the price of all the money you have to borrow in order to get the house. So those are two very different numbers. Over the past two years here, we have seen a pretty serious stabilization in terms of the actual prices. We saw them spiking really heavily during 2020, and then really heavily throughout most of 2021. And then we started having the Fed come in and start cracking down on things toward the end of 2021 and into 2022, and just getting really serious on it in 2022. And as a side effect, we saw the rate at which prices are increasing decrease. They didn't they haven't gone negative in most markets and in the u.s as a whole prices aren't actually going down they're still going up. in other words 5, people aren't losing
0: 70%. value in their home that they purchased compared to
1: inflation they might be but okay compared to the value that they paid for it when they originally bought it yes it's technically worth like more dollar amounts um long story short though my, my point there with uh, explaining that is that your list prices have started to stabilize a lot But since interest rates have gone up significantly, that correlates to a much higher price that you actually pay in buying the home, just because your monthly mortgage payment is just going to be that much higher. And I obviously, in the article, I'm referring specifically to 30-year fixed rate mortgages, because those are your standard mortgages. They're about 70% of your mortgages. There are other ways to buy housing. Some of them are going to be a little bit more affordable when the interest rates are really high. But by and large, your 30-year fixed rate mortgages, your standard. And when the interest rate on that type of mortgage goes up significantly, as it has, you end up with a lot of really serious price increases in terms of the mortgage payment that you pay. But not necessi- that doesn't necessarily mean that you're seeing more expensive list prices. In, in cities like Los Angeles and San Diego and a lot of other just general West Coast cities, we see prices falling pretty consistently. Um, but that doesn't mean that things are more affordable. That doesn't mean you're paying less for your mortgage now. I wrote the article to give people a word of caution on that because it's easy to be going around on something like Zillow and, oh God, this house is $250,000 off. It's like, wow, what a huge discount. That doesn't mean it's going to be actually cheaper for you to buy. And you need to really bear that in mind and keep that in context of like how much that house would have cost a year ago, two years ago. Keep that in context because it's a marketing ploy on part of the a lot hmm. of the sellers and on part of the real estate industry where they're trying to bring people back into the market and they're off- offering all kinds of concessions and price cuts to to get that to happen. Um, but it's very important to to treat that with a certain degree of caution and not feel like you're you've got a deal because it was thirty percent off when in fact you're just paying even more. You're just paying it to different people.
0: <laughs> so essentially, instead of the homeowner getting. Sixty percent, that thirty percent, or sixty percent, or whatever—you're just paying more in mortgage. Yeah, because the mortgage rates have been increased. Yep. Okay. So, how how much more expensive would you say? If you were to put like an average on it, if I were to buy the house that I'm living in right now, we rent, but obviously, we've been waiting for the market to cool down, which should probably was foolish based on this interview we've been waiting for the market to cool down before we go and buy a house and prices will come down and now of course interest rates have gone up um if i were to buy the house that i'm in now this 2500 square foot home in 2021 versus 2023 what would the average be that the, pr- the price increased on the the f- amount I'm paying essentially in,
1: in terms of the amount that you're paying on your mortgage you or compared right. to your rent.
0: Yes. Yeah. Mortgage. Let's say the monthly payment, right? Because I know in the article you had a specific number where, yeah. Okay. You could have bought this house for hundred a month, but now it's 2,600 a month or yeah, forget what the exit example that you used.
1: Yeah. I used a 400 K house and I just ran the numbers based on the interest rates back in 2021 and 2022 as compared to now. And uh, Basically in the article I make the case that it's about 25% more expensive now. You'd have to have a 25% cut in prices to be at the same level of, of affordability with your mortgage today as it was as it would have been if you had bought the same house at the same price back in 2021. For your specific house it would depend on like where your what your house was priced at back in 2021 and what it would be priced at now because there's going to be variation in that obviously. The $400,000 house in 2021 is going to be a different house than a $400,000 house now, just because yeah, ha- it's more expensive. You got to buy less house with the $400,000. So do you see... One
0: th- d- go ahead, go ahead.
1: Uh, just a really important like, context note with this. One important thing to bear in mind is that it, it really doesn't look like things are going to become more affordable. I did mention earlier, that there has been a broad push in a lot of different municipalities to encourage more housing construction, but it takes time for housing to actually be built. And so the positive effects of that that new wave of policy is not going to come into effect for a few years at least. And in the meantime, this is a recent development from after I published the article. The Fed has continued to hike up rates. And we've when I wrote the article, I think rates were around six percent on your thirty year fixed rate mortgage, and now they're at about six point five. Um, and bear in mind that 's just the base rate that 's not your that 's not the final amount that you would pay because there 's a lot of other fees that come along with having to buy your home insurance and your mortgage insurance and your all other kinds of fees associated with actually buying a
0: home. I was just focusing very narrowly just on the that base interest rate sure now you 're not a financial planner nor are you a magician and a fortune teller all the disclaimers right. It is a standard common phrase of, oh, we'll let the market cool down. A lot of people are doing what we're doing, where we're just going, all right, we want to buy a house, we're renting right now, it'll be more affordable in two years. So you think that may actually not be the case, that, you know, the level we're at is just the level that we're at, and I'm hosed, because I didn't buy that house in 2010.
1: I think that things are going to improve. Okay. Don't get me wrong on that. I do think that a lot of this movement to build new housing has really taken root. And the good news is it's bipartisan. It's People are trying to politicize it, but by and large, it is a bipartisan movement. And I think it's going to see some really positive returns over the next few years. And if the Federal Reserve's c- Reserve continues to be as hawkish as it has with interest rates, then I suspect that the interest rates are going to stabilize once they feel like they've gotten inflation under control. And once we see those two effects come into play together with the interest rates going back down while prices also go back down, we'll see a massive improvement in affordability. In the meantime, I do suspect that there is going to be a crunch for a lot of people. Uh, and it's a tough thing, but is that there's not a lot of really short-term solutions to it, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And the more they try to help, the less they're going to help. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, bring in new programs just brings in more bureaucracy. (laughs) Yes. I'm not going to go full Reagan, but we all know the quote. Uh, Shameless self-promotion, Jeremiah Ludwig. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people follow your work if they want to know more? You can find me at Ludwig underline Jeremiah
1: on Twitter. And that's probably the best place to find me.
0: I'm all right well th- thanks for joining me it's a pleasure Chris thank you so much for having me and thank you listener for joining me here on the program we really enjoy having you here and he just disappeared and freaked me out so my apologies normally hang out, and but it's all good really interesting interview we hope it helped you if you learned something if you found something interesting then please share it with your friends that's the best way to help any content that you like grow so thank you for listening here on the Chris Spangle show